everyone. Good morning and welcome to the well here at STSA. Great to see so many people back from their summer vacations and so many people here. If you're just joining us here today, you're coming in in the middle of a series uh, where we are studying the book of Esther, an Old Testament book that has everything that you could ask for in a uh, Hollywood drama action. It's got action. It's got comedy. It's got suspense. It's got some romance. It's got royalty. It's got everything that any Hollywood movie could ask for. And then in the end, we look at it, we discover it's actually not a movie. It is a reality show. And it's the greatest reality show ever because the star of this reality show, even though his name is not mentioned once in the book, the star of the show is God himself. And the whole point of this series, the main message that we've been looking at is the invisible hand of God. And what we've seen in this story is that even though God is not present overtly, we never hear say God did this or God said that, or we never see God acting, but we know God is the maestro of the story. God is the, is the conductor of the orchestra where all kinds of stuff is happening up on stage, but we know we see that God is the one who's conducting it from behind the stage or behind the scenes, and we see his fingerprints all over the story. And that's good news to us. It's good news to us to know that no matter what we see, no matter what happens out there, that God is never asleep. God never leaves his people. God never, ever, ever slumbers or takes a break on the job. That's good news for us, because like I spoke about earlier today, our nation has seen a bit of a tumultuous week. Been a lot of turmoil in our country. From over here and over there and everywhere we see it on social media, on the news, everywhere you go you see the place is an upheaval. But let me give you a little bit of comfort in the midst of all that. That no matter how bad the situation may look today, the situation for Esther back thousands of years ago was worse. And where we left the story last week, just to kind of catch everyone up to speed, was that Esther, poor Jewish girl, won this beauty pageant, is now the queen of Persia, okay, married to King Ahasuerus. But the king got duped by the wicked Haman. Haman, who was like one of his assistant guys, kind of got promoted up through the ranks, and Haman had an agenda. And that agenda was to wipe the Jewish nation off the face of the planet. And he duped the king, got him to sign a royal decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month of this year, that all the Jews would be, to, put in, to say it exactly as, 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 as Haman said it, annihilated. And every single one of them would be killed. Well, what we saw last week is when this decree was put in writing, Mordecai, who is the uncle of Esther, who's also Jewish, Mordecai heard about it and told Esther, hey, you're the queen, you're in the palace, maybe God put you here for a time like this. You gotta do something. You gotta tell the king, don't do this. Esther responds back with a little bit of hesitation. Esther says, I can't really do that because you can't just go to the king and say, I have a request. The king has to call you in. Mordecai responded to her with this verse that we saw right here, Esther 4.14. If you remain completely silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther responded. The final verse of we read last week in chapter 4. She said to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews for me who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And you could almost hear the dun-dun-dun, fade to black. Okay? That's the cliffhanger from last week. So Esther finishes last week. We finished last week with Esther basically saying, you know what? I'm ready to die. And I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but I'm going to do my part. 
and I'm going to trust that I'm not working alone here. This is the key to the story. That what we talked about last week, that regardless of the outcome of Esther's action, she was approved in God's eyes because God cares process, not result. Process, not result. Because you know why that's important, that we focus more on the process versus the results? Because if you focus on the result, it means that you're working alone. Can I accomplish this or I can't accomplish this? Esther, can you save the people? No, you cannot. But Esther, you're not alone. The invisible hand of God is with you. We're not alone in this world. We only have a part to do. And if we just realize that our part is simply our part, and there's more to the story, that our part may just be the spark, and God does the rest of the stuff. I liken it to a sailboat. All right, if I get in a sailboat and say, can I sail from here to over there? No, but if I tell you the wind is blowing, then it makes it a lot easier. So I don't need to figure out how to sail from here to there. I don't need how to oh, oh, row, row the boats with the oars. But you know what? I got to do my part. The wind is going to do its part, but I got to do my part. And I just got to get in that boat, got to get out off the shore, get in the lake, and get in the game. And that's what Esther does today. Esther today gets in the game. She said last week, if I perish, I perish. I got to do something. I can't just sit back here, like we said last week, just because there's nothing I can do doesn't mean there's nothing I should do. I got to get in the game. I got to do my part. I got to trust that when I jump in that lake, that God, the wind, something's going to happen even beyond my ability. So Esther today gets in the game. What does she do next? Someone who says, that's it. I'm fed up. Enough is enough. There's too much evil. There's too much wicked. I got to do something. I got to put a stop to this. What's the very next thing that someone like that does? What's the first? Last week we said trust and act. Trust and act. What's the action that Esther takes? The most powerful thing. Look at the next verse. I showed you all this verse last week. Now it happened on the third day. What's strange about that verse? What does it not say? It happened on the next day. Is what it should have said. Or happened on the same day. It should have been that Esther, rah, rah, siskum, bah, let's go. <laughs> that we got to go and we got to take action. And she stormed out of there, that she kicked in the king's door, and she demanded. Or at best, that she took a night to gather her resources, whatever it is, and the next day she went in. Sat all day Monday. Sat all day Tuesday. Sat all day Wednesday. And then around Wednesday afternoon, she said, okay, you know what? It's time to do something about this. Hey, Esther, what's going on? There's a plan to kill all of your people. The king has decided he wrote a decree. Time is of the essence. Now's not the time to update your Facebook status. Now's the time to take action. Well, she did take action. What was she doing for three days? Back to the last verse. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days. Night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise. Esther today shows us the power of waiting. And how sometimes the best action you will ever take is no action. And sometimes the most powerful thing that you can do to solve a situation is wait. And I'm going to prove that to you today. Before I do that, let me ask you a question. Without a show of hands, because we don't need to do a show of hands. You ever been wrong? <laughs> you ever been, not just wrong, not just like, hey, I think it's going to rain and it doesn't rain. Not that kind of wrong. Like wrong where like, I got this thing figured out. 
Like I have assessed the situation. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I know exactly what needs to be done. And then I go and I discover I assessed it wrongly. Maybe it's a person. I know exactly that person. And that person's a no good cheating, no good whatever. Then you later discover, you know what? I didn't have all the information. At the time, I was sure. But later, when I got more information, I discovered I was wrong and hopefully admitted it. Okay, but that's another lesson for another time. This past week, I was on vacation. Something happened to me on vacation that is a story that's just too good not to share. We went up to uh, uh, Western Massachusetts. Okay, usually we go to like beach, but this time we did like an adventurous, you know, we did like boating and hiking and stuff like that. Anyway, me and Marianne and the two kids, we went on a hike. Okay, so we're gonna go up this mountain, we're gonna do this hike. So we get to the, the, the thing at the bottom, like the welcome center, and the lady gives you the map. I grab the map, okay, and I'm and she said there's, you know, this trail and this one, then there's the one to the top. So automatically, we're going to the top, okay? That's not even a question of which one we're going to. Okay, we're going to the top. So she makes it clear that when you go up, you're going to see, I think it was red, right, Marianne? You're going to see red circles to mark the path, okay? Red circles follow this path. And on the way back, that path has yellow. Red means going up. Yellow means going down. Or was it red or blue? Blue. I think it was blue. I'm colorblind, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, let's say blue. Blue and then yellow, okay? Because red comes later in the story. You'll see. Blue going up, yellow going down. On the way up, we were good, okay? And we're going, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the map. Okay, turn left here. There's going to be something here. Boom, boom, boom. We're going up the map. We're doing great. We get to the top. Enjoy our time. At the top, there's this lady. This lady seemed like a nice lady. And she started chatting with us, so we're chatting with her about whatever it may be. And as we're about to leave, I noticed that there's another path over here. So I asked the lady. Is this the path that goes down? Because I know there's multiple paths that go down. And she said, yeah. And she said with confidence. She said, okay, we're going to take that path. Because I'm adventurous. I like to discover new things. Why go down the same way you came? <laughs> so we go down that path. Now here's the part of the story that Marianne will tell a little bit different than I. <laughs> As we're going down the path, we didn't see yellow markers. She claimed that she informed me of this. <laughs> I don't recall that any of that. Long story short, we're going down that path, and all of a sudden, the path is no more a path. And we've been going for about a half hour, and the path kind of ends right there in kind of the middle of the mountain. But in my mind, even though Marion had said, maybe this isn't the right one, it's okay. And I got my map. I got me a walking stick. Okay, just grab one. And I am like, we're going down this mountain, okay? And we're going down no path because we're at the point where it's too late to go back. Okay, because we've gone down like 45 minutes, it's too late to go back up to the top. We know we're getting lower, we just don't know where it is exactly that we're going. Luckily, though, God had arranged it in visible hand of God. Just the day before, I had been watching one of these survivor shows on Discovery Channel. <laughs> so I was like totally ready, okay? I was ready to like kill or whatever and eat. I was like ready, okay? Long story short, we get to the bottom. Not through a path, just going down like trees and logs and go this way and go this way. We get to the path. We get to the bottom, I'm like, finally, Marianne, I see, I see a car and I see like a song. I'm like, we made it. We get down there and we're in someone's backyard. <laughs> Man comes out and says, are you lost? And I said, I think we're lost. I explained where we were. He said, sir, you're an entirely different city. Because apparently you climbed up a mountain and then went down the other side of that mountain. It's a 20-minute drive back to where it is that we started. Now, here's the story, moral of the story, boys and girls. As we were going down that mountain, and Marianne claims that she told me that this was not the right path, and she said that she had told me many times. She said she saw red X's or something like that, which I don't remember. 
I was so sure that I was right. I was so sure. And as I'm going down there, I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Like, I got the map. I got the stick. I saw the discovery. Like, I'm good. I was so sure I was right. And then later on, I discovered I was absolutely positively 100% wrong. This ever happened to you? <laughs> this happened between you and God. You're in a situation where you are so sure, you are so sure that you had it figured out. Exactly A and then B and then C. And you were so sure, but God just wasn't cooperating. God just kept saying, no, turn around. You're like, God, but don't you see? You ever in that situation? Or the opposite, where God is pushing you and you're like, no, God, dead end. No, God, dead end. Don't you know what you're doing? This has been a problem with mankind ever since day one. Very first interaction between God and man in the book of Genesis, story of creation. Y'all know the story. God created Adam and Eve, and he said to them, don't eat of this. All of a sudden, one day a serpent showed up and said, you should eat this. And the day you eat it, what the serpent said, your eyes will be open. Best day of your life. And they said, yeah, that's a good idea. Hey, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Are you sure? No, we're sure. Are you sure? Because I think God said, no, 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 no. I got this figured out. No, no, no. Are you sure you're not missing some of the information? Are you sure maybe you didn't forget something? Are you sure there wasn't a sign that said, this is not a good idea? We are sure. We know what we're doing. And we're still paying the price for their sureness today. Esther teaches us that sometimes the best action is no action. And sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is wait. And we're going to see today why waiting is essential to discovering and seeing the invisible hand of God in your life. Why waiting is the most powerful thing that you can do. Sometimes, sometimes, I want to say all the time, but there's always sometimes where some people wait too long. But I want to say waiting is an essential part of seeing the invisible hand of God in your life. And we'll see what that means. Let's go back to our story. We're in chapter 5 of the story. We're going to move kind of quickly because we want to kind of get through the chapter. So I'm going to leave a lot aside some of the details, but we'll see how quickly we can get through this. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Highlight bold found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. We start to see the fruit of waiting right away. Is that he found, gives her, she finds favor in his sight. He holds out the scepter. Remember, if he didn't hold out that scepter, then she'd have been dead on the spot. That book of Esther would have ended on verse 2 right there in chapter 5 if she didn't find favor in his sight. It actually gets better. Verse 3. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Again, fruit of waiting. God knew Esther would be too scared to march in there and say, change this decree, because you can't change a decree. So God makes it easy. Esther, what can I do for you? You name it, and I got it. Like, God made it easy. He threw out the, the comment from the king. Just as an aside, okay, just as an aside, God whether you realize it or don't realize, is in charge of everyone, no matter what their position is in this world. There's a great verse from Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Esther was afraid to go to the king. God told her, Don't be worried. The king's in my hand. Don't you worry. 
Another verse, Ecclesiastes 5.8, if you see the oppression of the poor, the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Don't you worry. You see a king, well, high officials over high official, and then higher official is over them. Just thought some of you might need to hear that this week. We're always in the hands of God. Back to Esther, verse 4. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Esther doesn't say anything about the decree. says, please come to this banquet. Again, great testament to how great Esther is that she's able to throw a banquet while she's fasting. Okay, shows her character right there. All right. That's step one, verse five. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, again, he throws out... The, the lob right there. He says, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. He says yes before he knows what she's asking. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Your Esther, what do you say? Your Esther, what do you say? You want to rush in and say, this Haman's a bad guy. He did this. And you want to rush in. And you want to jump in. Esther, what she says. If I have five if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Esther, what? Why? Like, we're not here sitting playing, playing, playing games. We're doing dinner parties. Like, there's like a genocide. There's like annihilation plan. Are you sitting there throwing and inviting them over for tea and crumpets? Why not jump in? Why wait? Why delay? Why the first dinner party? Like Esther had a clear plan. Dinner party with you and Haman. Dinner party again next day with you and Haman. Well, that gets us to our first lesson here for today. We're going to see three lessons about the power of waiting. First thing about waiting. Waiting unlocks the wisdom of God. Waiting unlocks the wisdom of God. Without waiting, it's you and your trusty map down that mountain. Waiting opens another door, which is called wisdom of God, which you will never, ever, ever, ever know unless you learn to wait. You see, most people would have jumped in here as soon as the king said, give me your request, and they would have jumped in. The problem here, had she jumped in, there was, there was another plan going on. Like, it wasn't just Esther on her own. God gave Esther a clear, methodical strategy and the reason why is because while she was doing one two three god was doing one two three and while god told her you're gonna do this and then you're gonna do this then you're gonna do this it was not because of just hey let's kill some time it's because god had a plan and god was working behind the scenes which we're gonna see in just a minute but my point is to say it was not waiting for the sake of waiting it was waiting while god does his thing Think of it like waiting for a cake. Waiting on God is less, it's not like waiting for grass to grow or waiting for paint to dry or waiting for your hair to fall out. Waiting on God is like waiting for a cake in the oven. Why wait? Because there's something happening. And why wait? Well, why do I have to wait a half hour? Why can't I just pull it? Because stuff is happening and if you pull it out too soon, you ruin the cake. You know who got this? St. Paul. 
All right, back when St. Paul was converted, he used to be a persecutor of Christians. Then all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he told him, actually, you're doing this all wrong, Paul. I want you with me. What did St. Paul do after he was converted? What he wanted to do is he wanted to rush off and go preach to all the Jews like himself. You guys got this all wrong. You're, 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 you're trying to persecute Christians? No. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the God of the Christian. And that's what he wanted to do. His passion was go to the Jews and tell them. But look what happened right here. Galatians 1.15 says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, the desert, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. St. Paul. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him. But he needed three years to cook the cake. Why? Because during those three years, that God revealed to him the whole picture. And actually, St. Paul, you're not going to go to the Jews. You're actually going to the Gentiles. And St. Paul's like, but I don't know anything about the Gentiles. I lived my whole life as a Jew, and I don't know, I know Jews. I don't know Gentiles. And God said, no, no, no. Let, let, let. And because he waited, had he not waited, he'd have rushed off willy-nilly, preached to the Jews, had no wind in his sailboat, failed miserably, and said, I don't know where God is. Where are you, God? God, you called me, then you left me? No, 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 no. He didn't leave you. You didn't wait for him. And many of us find ourselves in that place right now. We think of waiting as idleness. Waiting as doing nothing. I'm telling you, sometimes waiting will be the most powerful thing that you do. Waiting is not idle. Waiting does not mean doing nothing. Waiting is a very active thing. It's not passive. Think of waiting like a waiter. How many of you have ever served as a waiter? I used to be a waiter. You know, as a waiter, you don't just sit around and say, you know what, let me know when you want something. That's not waiter. Waiter, it's, hey, can I uh, get you a drink? Hey, can I uh, get you a menu? Or, hey, what you want? Is that good? Do you want ketchup? Like, waiting you have to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And was it good? And I never understood why they give you the food, then they ask you how it, like, give me a minute, okay? I never understood that. But that's what waiting is. Waiting on God doesn't mean sitting back twiddling your thumbs. And that's why we resist it. Because we think of waiting as doing nothing. And we don't like doing nothing. We like to control stuff. Well, I'm telling you, waiting is a very, waiting is a roll up your sleeve kind of a thing. Look what Esther did. We're going to look right now at a prayer that Esther uttered. Now, this prayer that Esther said is in the book of Esther, but it's kind of not in the book of Esther. It's in the book of Esther in the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version. Okay, in the Old Testament, there's like a Greek Old Testament, then there's like a Hebrew Old Testament. Don't worry, don't get into all the details right now, but just there's parts that are in the Greek that are not in the Hebrew. So when you go back to the Greek, you'll see a prayer that Esther uttered during this time. And it says as follows. This is what it means to wait on God, not twiddling your thumbs. O Lord, do not surrender your scepter to what has no being. Do not let them laugh at our downfall, but turn their plan against them and make an example of him who began this against us. Remember, O Lord, make yourself known in this time of our affliction and give me courage, O King of the gods and master of all dominion. Put eloquent speech in my mouth before the lion, meaning the king, or Haman, and turn his heart to hate the, I'm sorry, it is the king. And turn his heart to hate the man who is fighting against us, so that there may be an end of him and those who agree with him. But save us by your hand and help me, who I'm alone and have no helper but you. 
the Lord. Waiting is not idle. Waiting is very active. And this is the piece that I'm telling you, so many of us are missing today in our, t- in our area of rushing off. And we got it figured out. And we know what we're doing. We just rush off. And I'm telling you, you're missing out. What does waiting look like practically? Waiting means God is driving, not me. So let's take that and apply that in different situations. You're in a relationship. You like him. He like you. Y'all ready to go and set the wedding date. Well, waiting means God drives the process, not you. Waiting means we're not pushing God. God will want it. And God will want it. And God will want it. Waiting means that God, we're seeking God and saying, God, are you want us? And you want us? And you want us? You're waiting around, let's say you're married. And you say, you know what? Waiting for God to give us children. Waiting for God to open our womb. Then waiting doesn't mean twiddle your thumb. Waiting means you're waiting for God to give you a son or daughter. Be the best son or daughter to him, to your parents. Build yourself up. Make yourself into the father or mother that you know that you want to be. You build yourself up. You're waiting for God to give you a break at work. Be faithful. Be honest. Be hardworking. Be the most hardworking, diligent, faithful in the least things, and wait for God till he opens the right door to make you ruler over much. Waiting is not a passive. Waiting is an active. Let's continue the story and get to our second lesson. Verse 9. After Esther waited, she did the two, she asked for the second dinner party. Now we kind of see a different scene. So Haman went out that day, joyful, and with a glad heart. Why did he go out joyful with a glad heart? Where did he just come back from? Dinner with the king and queen. He was invited to a private party with the king and queen. So of course he was happy and in a good mood. But that changes quickly. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. This time Mordecai, before Mordecai didn't bow, now Mordecai doesn't even stand. Mordecai is the man. Because Haman right now is the one who's controlling the destiny of all the Jews. But Mordecai says, my life ain't in your hands. I know who's, my life is in the control of the one who's above you. Because there's high official over high official and higher official. And so I'm not even stand for your presence. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Jeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Haman started bragging about how great he was. Why? Because he felt slighted by Mordecai. Mordecai, who's a nothing. And Haman, who's in everything. Haman is like the king's right-hand man. And all of a sudden, this little nothing guy slights him, and Mordecai, or, and Haman feels upset and disrespected. So he starts going around. This is the guy who says, you know, back in high school I was. And you know, back in the day I used to be. And you know, and I'm sure his wife and kids are like, oh, not again. But that's who Haman was right now. Haman, I, I can't leave this point. Haman, at this point in time, has everything in the world going for him. Private dinner with the king and queen. He's got the signet ring of the king. He just ordered a decree to wipe out these people or his enemies off the face of the planet. Something that his ancestors have been trying to do for years. Haman has everything going for him. But he can't let go of his anger versus Mordecai. Look at this next verse. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see what anger does? See what anger, what hatred, what it does? He's got the world at his fingertips, and Mordecai is going to die. 
This genocide is going to happen. Like, he's going to die. Just let it go, Hamid. It's not that big a deal. But he can't. He can't. He can't. He can't. The whole world, but he can't. That's what anger does. Finally, his wife says, stop complaining about it. Do something about it. Verse 14. Then his wife, Jeresh, and his, all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And finally, this thing pleased Haman, so he made to have the gallows made. Finally, Haman can smile. He can go to his bed at night thinking of this beautiful gallows that he's going to hang Mordecai on. You see what anger does? What anger does? Now, the chapter ends here, but the story doesn't. But I wanted to pause here because I thought this was a good... I'm going to continue the story in a second. But I wanted to pause at this point because I think this is a good place to reflect. Because oftentimes in life, like we're going to get to the end of the story, and I already told you in the beginning, the good guys win in the end. But oftentimes, we go to sleep in the middle of the story. And as I look out over the crowd here today, and I know people's circumstances and stories, a lot of us are at this point in the story, where we know God is with us, and we know God is going to do something but we just don't see it. It looks bleak. Like, yeah, we had the dinner with the king. Okay, but so what? And there's another dinner planned. Okay, but like, I know God is there. I know God is not going to leave me. But I just don't know what he's going to do. This is where our second lesson comes in. Waiting brings big impact out of small actions. Waiting brings big impact out of small actions. The theme of this story, as we've seen from the start, is things are not what they seem. What's big is small, what's small is big. King was a big man, his decree was a big decree, but in God's eyes, those are small. King was small, decree is easy, no problem. Esther was a small little girl, and her action was just to cook dinner for the guy. But in God's eyes, that's a big action. Big is small, and small is big in God's eyes. And that especially is true of something Mordecai a very small action, which he did, which we talked about last week. For those who were here last week, I showed you a passage in chapter 2 where Mordecai did something, and I said, just hold on to this for later. Basically what had happened is there were two guys in the king's court who were plotting to kill the king. This is very early on in the story before any of this stuff. And Mordecai heard it. So Mordecai told them, say, these two guys, these guys are trying to kill the king. And the king discovered it and had those guys hung. So Mordecai basically saved the king's life. What happened in chapter 2? Now we're in chapter 6. Completely different time, months later. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night, that night, you know what that night is? That night should signal something. Fingerprint of God. God is in this. When it says that night, you say, uh-uh, uh-uh, I've seen this one before. I've seen this one before. God's about to creep in the picture. Watch what happens. That night, the king could not sleep. That night, meaning the night before Haman comes and asks Mordecai to be killed. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found that Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That night, when Haman said, build the gallows, tomorrow I'm going to ask to kill Mordecai. That night, king couldn't sleep. So the king does what you and I do when we want to go to sleep. He read the Bible. <laughs> he read the book. And he read the history of 
the Chronicles and all the stuff that, so he says, okay, bring me, that'll put me to sleep. And in there, he discovers the story of Mordecai. And when Mordecai had saved his life, watch this. Verse 3. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Remember the movie Jaws? Okay, where everything is going fine on the surface, and all of a sudden you hear, it. And you know, like, uh-oh, Jaws is cut, like, uh-oh. That's what I feel watching this, but in a positive way, not a negative way. Like here you have all this stuff going on in Haman and Bill the Gallows, but all of a sudden you hear, it. Uh, and you know, God is creeping into the story and he's about to pop his head up because there's just too much random stuff happening. Invisible hand of God is working. Verse 4. Oh, sorry, before we get to verse 4, remind you of this. Oh, the depth. This is our theme verse. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Never, ever forget that verse. That God's ways are not like our ways. That God thinks, oh, so much bigger than we do. What is the likelihood? That in the same night that the guy was planning to kill the guy, that's the same night that the king couldn't sleep. Like, had it been one day sooner, would have made a difference. Had it been one day later, it would have been too late. But just that night, just the right time. You see how God worked? You see why you have to wait on God? You see why you have to wait on God? Because God has a plan. That's what I'm trying to show you. God has a plan. You're not on your own. God has a plan. And if you don't learn to wait for him, you will short-circuit his plan. You will run ahead of God, and you will say, God doesn't know what he's doing. It's not that God doesn't know what he's doing. It's that you didn't wait. When I see this verse, I think to myself, how are God's ways different than our ways? God's ways, you got no wine? Bring me water. God's ways, you need to feed 5,000 people? Bring me that little boy's lunch. God's ways. You see a lake or a sea or a river. You say, how can I go around? God says, no, we don't go around. We go through or on top of, but never around. That's God's ways. You see a mountain and you say, God, that mountain is standing in my way. And God says, no, the mountain is not in your way. Your lack of faith and your lack of waiting is what's in your way. The mountain will never be in your way because you got faith. You got waiting. I'll pick the mountain up and I'll go around. There's no mountain in your way. You're in your way. Beauty of God. Verse 4, so the king said, Who's in the, who, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. Then the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him in. Y'all ready for a good scene? You got to picture this stuff. The Bible, you got to picture this stuff. Here you have Haman. How is Haman walking into the king's court today? A, a pep in his step. He's coming in. He built his gallows. And he's lusting over his gallows. He's going to hang Mordecai on it. This is going to be the greatest day. He walks into the king's gallows. Or, I'm sorry, into the king's court. And he's thinking, as soon as I get there, I'm going to request a meeting. He walks in, and someone says, hey, Haman, the king is looking for you. And Haman says, thank you, God. I got an appointment with the king. This is going to be too easy. And I think I picture him like looking at the gals and being like, like. <laughs> and before he can get a word out with the king, before he can get a word out with the king, look what the king says. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, full of pomp and all full of himself. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is too easy. Truly, God is with me. The king is saying, I want to honor somebody. 
And okay, Haman, how do you think I should honor him? So okay, king, I'll play along. That's what he does. Verse 7, and Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and which the royal, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on a horseback. Like, man, this guy had this whole thing thought out. Parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> you laugh, I'm telling you. I'm making this stuff up, but I'm telling you. I think God is up in heaven like... <laughs> and now comes one of the best lines ever in the Bible. You got to picture the scene. Can you all picture the scene? Can you picture it? Like, the, nah, nah, nah. what should I do? And I don't know. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robe and the horses you have suggested and do so far. Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoke. I'm telling you, from at this moment when he said this, I picture, I hear two sounds, two groans going out in the king's palace. One from, the, from Haman and one from God. First from Haman I hear, and from God, I hear. <laughs> this is one of those like, where's the camera? This is like candid camera. Like this has got to be a joke. There's no way. This is I, there was a show when we were kids called Punked. I don't know if it's still going on or not, but there's, I'm sure you're familiar with the with the with the like. Okay, this is something that there's no way. This is either a show, this is either a trick, or this is the invisible hand of God which works in ways that you'll never understand. At times, you'll never know. The invisible hand of God strikes again. Verse 11. So Haman, Haman had no choice. Okay, he's the one who suggested all this dumb stuff in the beginning. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed, you could just hear him, thus shall it be done to the kingdom of he couldn't say anything because it was his stupid idea to begin with. And you know that he's in pain right now. And this is just the start of what's going to happen to Haman. Afterward, Mordecai, verse 12, went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. Now, Haman is the one who is in mourning as opposed to the way it was before with the Jews. Verse 13, listen to what happens next. His wife. When Haman told his wife, Jeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His wise men and his wife said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of, Jew is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. His wife speaks prophetically. Now let me ask you a question. How did she know that Haman was going down? She says it right here. And she's right. We're going to see that next week when we wrap up. How did she know that Haman was going down? You know what's shameful for us? You know what's shameful for us? Is when people who are not God's people know the history of God's people, which is that God never leaves his people. And God never leaves his people. And she knew that. And she had studied her Bible. Remember how last week I told you it's impossible to live a life of hope 
It's impossible to be always uplifted. It's impossible to believe you don't have your Bible. Because how, if you look out there, the world is a dreary, dark place. But when I come to my Bible, I see, you know what? Been there, done that. It's not the first time that God's people get attacked. It's not the first time that evil reigns. It's not the first time that there's this much darkness. And it will not be the last time. And every single time, God's record is spotless. Yet somehow, when we're in the middle of the moment, the people outside know the history. And us who are on the inside, shame on us. Shame on us that we doubt our God when people outside don't doubt our God. Shame on us that people outside in the king's court say, no, you're a people of God. No, you're not. There's no way you can lose. And we inside say, well, what's good? Shame on us. Shame on us. And that gets us to our final lesson. Waiting reminds me that God finishes what he starts. Waiting reminds me that God finishes what he starts. It is just a matter of time. God never, ever, ever starts, God's not us, starts a project and leaves it undone. God never has like a long to-do list like, ah, uh, God never. God starts a project and you write it down. It will be finished. When? I don't know. That's why we wait. Because when we wait, we realize just because God is not done yet doesn't mean God is not going to finish. Waiting reminds us what Mordecai knew which is Philippians chapter 1, 6, that we are confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What I love about Mordecai is after he was arrayed in this royal robe, trotted around the city like a king, it said that he went back to the king's gate, went back to his normal life. He didn't lobby the king. He didn't spit in Haman's face. Like how often is it that when we have nothing, we trust in God, and then all of a sudden, we get a little bit, we forget about God. Like we wait on God when we have nothing. Like we're single, we're waiting on God, we're waiting on God, we're faithful, we're waiting on God. And then all of a sudden, we're not single, and all of a sudden, God who? And, and we're waiting on God, and we're waiting on God for our work. And where are you, God? And I got nothing, God, and I got nothing. Then we get the job, and all of a sudden, it's, I don't know where I keep my money, it's my money. No, God, tell me what to do with my money, and no more God. We wait on God, we wait on God, we wait on God, and then God gives us what we want, and we don't remember his name. Not Mordecai. Mordecai went back to his place. He didn't say anything to King. He said, you know what? God started this. I have no doubt God is going to finish the job. Here's my question to you as we wrap up here. What did God start in your life? What did God start in your life that maybe you stopped waiting for? What did God start in you? Something in your family? Relationship? Maybe it was like a, a venture, a career thing. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. What did God start in your life? What did God say, hey, you know, and then you started, you know what, uh, uh, and we said, no, nothing came of that. Are you sure nothing came of that? Maybe you pulled the plug too soon. Maybe you thought waiting on God was a passive thing. So you thought, yeah, when God wants it, he's going to, but no, no, waiting on God is actually an active thing. You wait on God through prayer. You wait on God through your Bible. You wait on God through repentance. You wait on God through giving, through serving. Like you wait on God actively. And maybe you stop waiting. I got news for you. The people in the story of Esther, man, they saw some dark days. But there was never one second where God was asleep on the job. Never one second where God had forgotten his people. And I'm telling you, in your life, there's never one second where God has forgotten you or God is asleep in your life, or God doesn't know what to do next, or God is painted into a corner. There is never one. You may not see it, because science, but yes, but not absent. 
Maestro, behind the scenes, yes. But the question is, what are you going to do this week to wait on God? What can you do this week? What active step of waiting can you take? Here's a great verse for you to leave with. But those, Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Esther waited on God. She showed us the most powerful action of this whole story was nothing that she said, nothing that she did. It was in that three-day silence. We don't know what happened, but we know Esther waited on God. And that three-day wait saved a nation. It saved her uncle, and we're going to see next week how it ultimately saves a nation. Why? Because what waiting on God does, it unlocks his wisdom. It turns small, meaningless, trivial into huge impact. I can't believe that came of that. And it reminds us to stay faithful because what God starts, he finishes. Esther waited on God and came out with confidence of I'm going to do A, then I'm going to do B, then I'm going to do C, and then God's going to take care of the rest. How cool would it be if you could feel that same confidence in your life, in your career, in your relationships. How powerful, how invincible could you feel, would you feel, if you knew that God was working and all you had to do was do your part. That's my prayer that every single one of us feels that way because there's no greater feeling in the whole wide world. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which you have preserved over so many years, that inspires us, and that gives us stories like this to remind us of your faithfulness, and how you finish what you start. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn what it means to wait on you, and that you would that you'd give us like the patience to pursue you, and not just take quick actions, but that you would be the true driver of our lives and not ourselves, that it wouldn't be us pushing you, but you pushing us every step of the way. I pray this in the name of your Son, with the prayers of all your saints. Here says we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.